Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, Poetry Editor of the New Yorker Magazine. On this program, we invite poets to select a poem from the New Yorker archives to read and discuss. Then they read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Aria Aber, a Whiting Award recipient, a current Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, and the author of Hard Damage, which won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. Aria, welcome. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So the first poem you decide to read today is Half Light by Frank Bedart. Tell us, what was it that drew to this poem as you were looking over the archive? Um, I guess I've been reading and rereading this poem for a very long time, and its meaning has changed over the last few years for me personally. And I just think it's such an unusual and very special elegy. Well, why don't we hear the poem? Here's Arya Aber reading Half Light by Frank Bedart. Half Light. That crazy drunken night, I maneuvered you out into a field outside of Coachella. I'd never seen a sky so full of stars, as if the dirt of our lives still were sprinkled with glistening white shells from the ancient seabed beneath us that receded long ago. Parallel, we lay in parallel furrows. That suffocated, fearful look on your face. Jim, yesterday I heard your wife on the phone tell me you died almost nine months ago. Jim, now we cannot ever Bitter that we cannot ever have the conversation that in nature and alive we never had. Now, not ever. We have not spoken in years. I thought perhaps at 90 or 100, two broken down old men, we wouldn't give a damn and find speech. When I tell you that all the years we were undergraduates, I was madly in love with you. You say you knew. I say I knew you knew. You say there was no place in nature we could meet. You say this as if you need me to admit something. No place in nature given our natures. Or is this warning? I say what is happening now is happening only because one of us is dead. You laugh and say, or both of us. Our words will be weirdly jolly. That light I now envy exists only on this page. That was Half Light by Frank Bedart, which was published in the November 10th, 2014 issue of the magazine. 
So uh, I want to talk about uh, Frank Bernard's poem. I, I want to start with the title. I want to start with the end. I don't know where to begin because it's such a rich poem, as you indicate. Um, and I think what it does so well, at least for me, is is capture both the interior struggle and monologue or, or dialogue even with the self, and then also this sort of imagined dialogue. And how do you take those parts of the poem? How do you see them working together? That's a very interesting question because there is such a seamless flow in the poem, right? It starts with the monologue and the speaker elegizes the fact that they can't have that conversation. Right. And there is that repetition with the syntax that's so strange, bitter, that we cannot ever have the conversation that in nature and alive we never had. Now, not ever. And then like one or two stanzas or couplets later, he does have that imagined conversation. And that's the magic of poetry, I think, that he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's really conjuring up this dead person Mm-hmm. and has the conversation that then isn't even that melodramatic or sad. It's hilarious and brings humor into it. Right. And I love that you also want to talk about the title because it's such an interesting title, right? Like, what is the half-light? And I, I always read it as, like, the light between this world and the other. Mm-hmm. Like, the veil, and the light glimmers through the veil a little bit. But then where is the light coming from? Is it coming from our world or the other one? How do you read it? <laughs> I think it's also the half light of knowledge uh, in a way of wisdom. You know, he's half wise in the start of the poem, even in Coachella. Uh, and I love this verb. Uh, I maneuvered you out. You know, there's this kind of hopefulness mm. or, or uh, desire design, you know, um, which I think is is benign because they're clearly friends and attached, but there's more unspoken. And there's that dash, dash, that suffocated, fearful break look on your face. This moment of resistance on sort of both of the speaker and uh, Jim's part. And then I think that conversation... Yesterday, I heard your wife on the phone tell me you died almost nine months ago. There's this kind of uh, so loaded with significance, nine months, this kind of notion of the wife, which indicates some difference in, in, in wishes, I think, among the speakers. Um, Jim's had a whole life, you know, I'm not a half one. And there's a question, I think, whether the speaker feels the speaker has had a full life without saying this truth. Mm. I'm not sure. <laughs> There's so much there. That's so beautiful. No, I think you're totally right. Because the bitterness isn't just the lack of connection, is that we cannot ever have the conversation, which you, you read so beautifully, that in nature and alive we never had. And I guess the other question I had is about nature. And what do you think the poem means when it says nature, which I think it means several things. Yeah, I don't know if there is a definite answer to what the poem means when it says nature, especially because that line, there was no place in nature we could meet, is repeated over and over again in Bedart's poetry over the years, right? I was just like looking through the collected poems of his because I was trying to find a different poem, which I think is also about this Coachella experience. 
I couldn't find it. But instead, I found this line repeated over and over again. And I think it starts in Confessional, which is an elegy about the mother, um, which Bedard wrote very early on in his career. And that just complicates this idea that there is the nature of the living, I guess, and the lack of nature of the dead because they're just in the underworld now. Mm. But here, I think also there was no place in nature we could meet, no place in nature given our natures. I think it speaks to the tension of the queerness of their desire, right? And that goes to the wife of Jim, I think, in a way, and, and that fearful look on his face and perhaps the idea that sometimes you tell yourself that your nature is different than what it really is or that some mm -hmm. type of desire is not natural. Yeah, it is very interesting because obviously there is also more literal references to nature with the stars. Yes. One of the most beautiful descriptions of the stars you'll ever see. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never seen a sky so full of stars as if the dirt of our lives, which of course speaks to nature in all senses, still were sprinkled with glistening white shells from the ancient seabed break beneath us that receded long ago. And suddenly we're in that place where we are made of stardust and the stars are made of us. I mean, it's a beautiful set of lines. I also think there's a humor that you mentioned, I think. I mean, I maneuvered you out into a field outside of and you think it's going to be, you know, like Paris or, 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 you know, like Rome, and, you know, some beautiful, you know, anywhere. It's Coachella, this yeah. kind of artificial nature um, set up in the you know, woods. I think that's very funny. It's so funny. And it also like really places you into the minds of these young people, right? And the balance between the high and the low in this poem is pretty amazing, even though it's just that Coachella word that almost pulls all the weight. Yeah. Well, but I, I think you pointed out too at the end, you laugh and say, or both of us, they both might be gone. And there's a sense of temporality, of missed moments, but also of ever with the stars. And then the end here, that light I now envy exists only on this page. And, you know, that weird jolliness is something that I think poets often do, but I think Bedard especially is able to capture that strange mix of emotions. Do you think of them as kind of um, contemporary or high and low? Or how do you think of that weird jolliness, let's call it? The weird jolliness of the poem. I, <laughs> I think the weird jolliness of grief, I think, is very mm. true to the experience of grief. Like the most basic idea of a funeral where not everybody's just crying. You obviously end up fighting or laughing and the living have their gaudiness in which they compete with each other. But also the more private moments of grief when you try to be extremely sad because that's what we learn as the accurate emotion when somebody passes but something funny happens or you notice yourself taking yourself too seriously or something. Mm. And to bring that jolliness into the poem, I think is such a smart move, especially because it happens at a moment where the speaker is conversing with the dead. And I think the dead do have humor. Like if the spirits do converse with us, if we are so lucky, then I think they're not deadly serious, our loved ones. I think they would laugh at us a little bit and at the drama that we have on earth. 
And um, yeah, I, I do think it's a contemporary move. I am teaching a class on the poetry of mourning right now. And we go through like the canon and Milton and the ancient Persian poets and all the way up to Marie Howe and Solmaz Sharif. And you do see poets like during the confessional era kind of problematizing the elegy, especially the family elegy or the elegy towards loved ones. So I do think it's a move that once started in the 20th century at one point because our ethics changed and funeral practices changed and the idea of the family and the loved one, like that sacred union was kind of torn apart. But I also think it's always been true in a way. Yeah, humor is always a part of grief, I think. Well, A, I want to take that class. <laughs> and B, I think um, there's that other meaning of light and lightness, you know, feeling light in oneself. And there is, even in the crazy drunken night eye, that first line, which sort of interrupts itself uh, drunkenly, one might say, <laughs> is half lighthearted. You know, there is a kind of quality in the poem that allows, I think, these moments like parallel. We lay in parallel furrows. You know, it's almost grave-like, these furrows. And also this kind of parallel lives that are being described in the poem, I think. But to me, the light and the dark uh, meet in the poem so powerfully. Yeah, I agree. I love that line. The interruption after that long sentence of the description of the stars and then mm -hmm. parallel, we lay in parallel furrows. What a strange line, right? And it is, it has a grave-like quality to it. And then also is relating to whatever happens afterwards when they just like live their parallel lives and do not really meet in the mm -hmm. way probably both mm -hmm. of them desire or one more than the other. I think the, the form of the poem speaks to that too, as form often does, which is, you know, it's these couplets. Mm. Um, and that's another way that this matching or these pairing can meet is in poetry, but also in form. And I think the lines, you know, suggest connection. I always think of couplets as these kinds of pairings, but also there is no middle, you know, it's like, as soon as you start, you're ending. And, and that kind of also parallels the movement of the poem, I think, in which, you know, loss centers it, but isn't the end. That's very smart. I don't think I've thought of couplets that way before, <laughs> that as soon as they start, they end. There is a claustrophobic tension to them. And this poem is really interesting with the couplets because some of them are so short um, and the lines are much shorter than the others. It feels like very organic and natural. But I remember the first couple of times I read this poem, I always expected the couplets to break up and for there to be just like one long line at the end or somewhere in the middle. But that doesn't happen. The poem's form is intent on keeping these parallel furrows of the lines together next to each other. It's funny you say some are long and some are short. The short ones seem exactly right to me because I, I like a short line, I think. Um, but I do think there is this line that's his own. And I often think this in poems that they have their own line. I mean, both poets tend toward one, a kind of music they turn to. But I also think there's a kind of... Uh, Nature is not the right word, but since it's popping up so much, uh, kind of natural feeling or natural length. And it recedes, it, it extends, it does all these things. And in this poem, I think it, it really joins the short and the long, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like you have a line like dead, 
you laugh and say, or both of us, you know, and, and that kind of almost fulcrum starting really almost serious dead. And then the humor at the end is part of the poems movement. Yeah, you're very right. Again, an amazing line, like every line you can study <laughs> or every couplet in itself is yes. like, so it's, it's a class. It's a poem, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, you can teach a class on each couplet. It's so masterful. And yet it feels extremely natural and organic. It doesn't feel forced, you know, That's because right. of the colloquial nature of the language, because of the intimacy of the address. It's so hyper-specific and personal. The name of the beloved is mentioned twice. The phone call with the wife, the nine months, the Coachella experience, and it's traveling such lengths, and yet it feels so incredibly universal. Well, it's about regret, which is a human thing. I mean, I'm not sure if animals regret, perhaps. Yeah, it is a poem of regret. And yeah, missed chances. Well, I want to talk about your poem, which thinks about some of these things, I suppose. But in the March 29th, 2021 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your poem, Dirt and Light, which we'll read for us momentarily. Do you want to say anything about the poem first? Well, it was definitely inspired by Frank Bedard's poem. Here's Arya Aber reading her poem, Dirt and Light. Dirt and Light. Last night, it startled me again. I dreamt of the corn maze through which we walked almost a decade ago in the presence of our other lovers. It was all burnt down. Purple corn glowed in the fields enveloping the ruined maze, the woodlands washed by October sun. Instead of you, I found in the salt white music of that familiar landscape, an old piano hollowed by the draft of time and the handle of a porcelain cup and scorched soil, relics of an imagined civil life. Today, in the lemony light by your grave, I recited Merrill. Why did I flinch? I loved you. Then touched the damp and swelling mud, blue hyacinths, your mother planted there. Ants were swarming the unfinished plot of earth, like the black text of an infinite alphabet. I couldn't read it. There was no epiphany, just dirt, the vast curtain between this realm and the other. You never speak to me, I thought, not even in dreams. For hours, I sat there, mocked by the bees. Silly girl, their golden faces laughed. She still wants and wants. A warm gust shook the trees, and a pigeon settled into the dusk of a wet pine, and then another. That was Dirt and Light by Aria Aber. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's a speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for reading that. It came to life again. Um, and and so does sort of the figure in the poem. I, I think it really conjures both the grief and the beloved, as we were saying. That dream, I think there's that kind of conflation of this imagined civil life and the day with the swarm of the ants, which is so beautifully described. The ants were swarming the unfinished plot of earth like the black text of an infinite alphabet. I couldn't read it. Uh, and these bees who are laughing uh, at the speaker. I wonder about that, how the dream and the today, the lemony light, how that merged for you. Was it in the writing? Was it in the remembering? Is it all dream? Is it all poem? Well, I have to say, this was an incredibly intuitive poem to write. I actually had this dream and then I actually went to my friend's grave and it was unfinished. There were these hyacinths and there were mm -hmm. the ants that I looked at and I tried to make meaning out of them. You know, early on in, in the stages of grief, when everything is really fresh, you make a symbol out of everything. You walk through mm -hmm. the world and everything is pregnant with meaning and you see the face of the person that died everywhere. Suddenly everything is kind of like surreal and hallucinatory and I was waiting for an answer because this too is a poem of regret and not doing what you wanted to do, not living your desires. And then not getting that answer and just being met with the silence of the dead. Mm. I think that's what triggered this poem. And I was trying to write this poem for a long time, I think. And I couldn't write it until I left the cemetery that day. And then it came pretty quickly and was mm -hmm. almost finished by the time I put down the draft, but I don't know. I think the dream is important because the speaker or I myself, obviously, am trying to communicate with the dead person in the dream or in any dreams, because that's the space where supposedly the dead ones are visiting you and giving you messages. Mm -hmm. Other people always talk about that. And when that doesn't happen, it's so disappointing. So I think it's very natural that the dream is triggering the scene that is then set in real life. But it's also obviously a very surreal poem. The bees are laughing and there are the trees and the birds and the ants that are also like an alphabet. And I think 
that just was necessary because the psychology of grief mm -hmm. at that stage feels incredibly surreal to me. And by surreal, I think that word we now understand intimately, but also thus not at all in a way, yeah. because I think that you describe the dream, which is more real than the life that also is being lived, but also the one that's lost, I think. The hinge to me is, of course, the visit to the lemony light, which is so beautiful, by your grave, but then the Merrill. How did that happen? I, You know, reciting James Merrill, why did I flinch? I loved you, then touched. Uh, that's a beautiful line. Um, tell me how that came. So that's also actually pretty honest what I wrote there because I did have the pocketbook of Merrill's poems on me and I just opened it up onto any page and it was a dream called Laundry and I read it and I thought, oh my God, this is the perfect poem because that line encapsulates my regret mm. and, and everything that I didn't do. Um, while my friend was still alive. So why did I flinch? I loved you. Like that question and then that answer, self-answer after it just felt sure. incredibly um, accurate. And I thought I should keep it in the poem because right. the confession is then relayed through a quote of someone else, which also feels, I think, necessary for the speaker who lives through distance and dreams and, and like other mediums. Well said, but I think it also speaks to the power of poetry, how mm. poetry both consoles and expresses something that's inconsolable. Um, but, I, but I wonder how you think about landscape, because some of your poems, many of them, I would say, uh, think about land and, and space. And how do you approach that? Is that something you're conscious of or is that just where meaning lies for you or, or how does that erupt into the poems? That's a very beautiful question. I think you're onto something when you say, does meaning, is that where meaning lies for you? I think meaning does lie in place for me because I grew up in exile in an ugly apartment for the first 15 years of my life or so. I was yearning for beauty and the beauty of space and a beauty of land and the beauty of belonging. And I was like so thirsty for it. So that when I would take like strolls through my little German city and look into the windows of other people's houses and apartments that I think one does for the rest of one's life, right? There is always more to be yearned and bigger houses <laughs> and more beautiful apartments that you want to live in. But at that time, it felt like such an acute desire. And that really triggered my imagination, places and walking through streets and thinking about history. Also, I think European cities in general have been through so much and the history goes back for so many um, centuries that everything, again, feels charged in a way. And I'm obsessed with architecture and how architecture in Europe especially has been destroyed and then rebuilt after the war. How sometimes there are these old buildings that have fake facades put on again so that you don't see that they have been destroyed. But also landscape, I think has so many stories and ghosts to it. It can be an extremely spiritual place, like depending on where you are or a spiritual experience to be in a certain landscape, but it can be an experience of a spiritual void, right? So I do think that it just inspires me. And I think about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you mentioned exile and I think you know one of the other poems uh, we ran by you um, really revisits Kabul and... Um, 
I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, do you think of exile when you're thinking of these landscapes or is, is it formed by that or how do you experience it and has that changed? Um, that's a good question. I think living in exile is a spiritual condition that just like affects your mm -hmm. soul and you're always in exile, I think, unless you return to the place that you're from. And in my case, as with many other people, because I'm a second generation immigrant and was born abroad, I'm in a third space. Like going back to Kabul was really disastrous for everything that I had imagined until then, because I was like just projecting this romanticized version of a home country onto this ruined land. And then I went back and I couldn't write for a very long time. And I feel like my poetry changed afterwards. It's become a little bit quieter. And Notes from the Ruined City is the first poem I wrote after Kabul. And I guess these poems, like the poems that concern Afghanistan, feel like they're very much centered in the idea of exile and what exile does to one's language. But also poetry is so interesting because you can grieve a place in it, but you can also grieve a person. Everything feels like an elegy and simultaneously like a little crystal ball that you can keep the thing that you have lost or are mourning inside of and, and let the light shine through it as, as if it's a prism. And um, I think it has changed. I don't think I can write about Kabul for many years now because now my experience feels even more removed mm. than it is. But it was very interesting that people were sharing the poem a lot during the few weeks that the city fell or right after it. And I thought, yeah, the city has been ruined for 40 years, but now it's even more ruined. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder, you know, about form again and how form sometimes shores us up in these moments. Uh, and, and exile, I think, I think of that idea of poetry as this homeland um, and what form and poetry as a form does. I mean, does poetry capture home or does it, as you say, make it into a prism that you can see it, but it's also distant? Well, I think that is a question that everybody needs to answer for themselves individually because sometimes, and also my answer changes. Sometimes I have really optimistic days and I think, yes, poetry can capture home or poetry is a type of home. And I think I always will believe that poetry is a type of home for, especially for poets, but also for other people who love poetry because it is the place that we go to when we're at our most depressed, I think, and it often saves us because it gives us language and music and, and the arts at their best do save us. And I also think that not all poems can capture home, I think. Not all poems about a place can capture them. But sometimes I listen to a recitation of a Rumi poem and that does feel like it brings me back to a place of home. And I think that is the power of poetry is that it's more than, than fiction can do because it's in this place between language as communication and language as music. And I think it is what we use every day. It like still occupies the intellect a little bit. So not like music, but I don't know. Maybe today I would say, yes, it can capture home. <laughs> But I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I definitely... Um, 
you know, when I was growing up, I felt like I used to read these accounts of poetry and they'd say like, it's so terrible that poetry has to use the language we all, you know, use. I was like, that's the great thing, you know, is that it's this thing that's all around us, but we sometimes don't notice and poets help us notice it. And you talk about moving between languages. Is that something you do in your own life, but also do you ever do that on the page as well? Um, well, I do that in my own life because I was born and raised in Germany and I lived there for 20 years. So I consider German my first language. And then the first language of my home was Farsi. So when I speak to my parents, it's just like a mix of Farsi and, and German. It's incomprehensible to anyone else, I think. And when I, yeah, when I'm here, most of the time I speak English now. But in my writing too, I think, especially in my first book, when I started writing in English, I really wanted to explore that space between languages. And even when I read books, I'm mostly interested in, in a comparative approach that looks at literature from different cultures and different languages and traditions, because there are so many similarities and things engender each other, but also the slippery space between languages is so beautiful. And I feel privileged to have access to these different languages and see how their different musicalities and, and their traditions can texture a poem, as long as it serves the poem. I want to bring it back and end with thinking about this poem, uh, because there's the title, Dirt and Light, which is just a great title. Um, but also this nature, you know, speaking of nature earlier, that ends with the bees, who I almost think are kind of poets or, or off uh, camera, like hecklers or something to the poet, um, you know, silly girl, she still wants and wants. I mean, it brings that kind of humor we were talking about with the Bedart to bear that humor and grief. And then the end, a warm gust shook the trees and a pigeon settled into the dusk. I probably would end with dusk, you know, <laughs> it's, ooh, dusk. But then you have of a wet pine and then another. Tell me about that, because I think it, it almost indicates the kind of carrying on, I, I suppose. Uh, how did you hear that ending and, and these great bees? Well, the bees, I think, were necessary because there's sometimes that moment when you snap out of out of the self and you realize how ridiculous it is what you do at this moment, but also the distance between a person who's grieving acutely and a person who's not grieving. Or in a way, I don't know, some people are just lucky that they don't lose anyone they love so dearly until they're very old. And I also feel like I have been ushered into a great tradition now that I have lost mm. someone I love, that there are so mm. many other people who carry their grief with them forever. And it's just this shadow that you have over your life, no matter if 10 years have passed or like 20 years or just one year. It's just part of your life, that loss. But there are other people who don't understand it. And I think those were the bees that are laughing. But also, I think the bees in this poem in particular is nature and is like the beauty of nature that is in some ways indifferent to us and is more knowledgeable when it comes to death. Yes, there are animals that grieve as well and have funerals and have cultures and traditions like elephants and dolphins and, and whales. But at the same time, I don't think they have the same amount of regret. It goes back to regret that we humans are plagued with, I think. And the pigeons, yeah, you're right. I think it is a carrying on. But I also think it's an image of death, right? Like the 
speaker will also die. One pigeon has settled into the dusk and is gone, but there will be another. Like, we're all going to end up in the same place under the dirt. And the title, I think, I was thinking for a long time about the title. Obviously, sonically, it's kind of related to Half-Light, but I was just thinking about these two nouns and these two things that are so much part of our funeral tradition, right? Like we put the body under the dirt and we hope that the spirit goes towards light and these abstract images, one in the above and the one that is like our earth, um, just felt really charged to me. And yeah, that is the interplay of nature and that is what plants need to grow and what we need in a way too. Well, I can't put it better than that. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. This was wonderful. Dirt and Light by Aria Aber, as well as Frank Bernard's Half Light, can be found on newyorker.com. Frank Bernard's new book, Against Silence, is forthcoming this fall. Aria Aber is the author of the collection, Heart Damage. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and The New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.